Um, we've been doing a series for the last couple weeks called Faith Matters. And so we've been dealing with this idea, number one, that our faith is centralized around one thought. And that is that there was a guy who died and came back to life. His name was Jesus Christ. And so we began to say, for all of the stuff that we start fighting over, the reality is, is it is centralized around one central point. Our faith is based on that idea. We have a Savior who died and came back to life. We then kind of continued this last week with this idea that as we go forward, we, we want to kind of hold on to one idea again, continue to stop to say, you know what? It is God. There is and with that thought in mind, how do we begin to live our life? How does it change the way we live? Now, today I'm going to change it up just a little bit. Kind of have a little bit of fun, if you don't mind. Um, sometimes I start losing myself in, I don't know, in my thoughts, and I go, but we're going to start today. We're going to have a little bit of fun because we're going to talk about our faith, and we're going to talk about that thing which we hold on our laps or we sometimes read on the screen when we're in church. I want to talk about our Bibles. Do you remember the first Bible you got? I, I, I'm pretty clear with it. My dad, when I was about six years old, gave three of us in our family, my sister, my brother, and me. My youngest brother was too young at the time. But he gave each of us a giant print, old-time gospel hour Bible. Now, if you guys remember going way back into the late 70s, early 80s, uh, about late 70s, um, the Old Time Gospel Hour was putting out this giant print Bible that was the size almost of a family Bible, if you remember those great big things. And for some reason, my dad picked up three of them. And so that was my first Bible. And so when, you, when I went to church, I mean, I carried this thing that was bigger than the old phone bricks. You remember those? Um, it was massive. Now, there came a time and it came a place when I started to grow up. Well, let me back up a second. When you got your first Bible, were you given any instructions with it? Okay, my dad kind of sat us down and as a six-year-old, he gave us a list of instructions. How do you treat your Bible? And so very clearly as a six-year-old, I still have this ingrained in my mind that he was very sincere about this. You do not drop your Bible. You do not throw your Bible down. You do not draw in your Bible. Now, you are allowed to get a pen and you're allowed to underline, but otherwise you do not draw or write in your Bible. You can only underline. And one of the biggest things that we kind of got, and it wasn't at that time, but over the years, one of the things that he would continue, hey, don't ever put anything on top of the Bible. If your Bible's there, it's got to be on top of whatever else is there. And so I grew up with this very strong list of rules of how you treat your Bible. It is the Word of God. Now, I, I remember when I became a teenager, I was about 16, 17, and I went out and picked out my own Bible for the very first time, and I can still remember that. I picked out a Bible that was about a third of the size of the one my dad gave me. It was oh, a little bit smaller than my tablet, a little bit wider, and it was red. It was an open Bible, for those of you who kind of know all the different 
you know. And so I thought it was great. And just to prove that I was young and with it, I upgraded my version to a new King James version because I was having it. And I felt like, you know, this is just about like buying your first car. It was my first Bible that I bought for myself and it was awesome. Yet all those rules that I had learned as a kid continued to play out even when I bought my own Bible. Now, all of us who have grown up in church or many of us who have kind of had that Sunday school background in our background have had some kind of an idea about what our Bibles are about. Um, most of us, in fact, I came to, from a, at a very young age to realize that there were other people who had some slightly different ideas also about the Bible. So I learned very quickly when I was growing up that if I went into a home, you could tell if they were a good Christian or not a good Christian by where their Bible was placed. If you were a good Christian, you put your Bible front and center right there on your coffee table so that whenever anyone came in, it was clearly visible, this is a good Christian home. I also learned, and I, I had several friends, and, and I'm really serious about this, that would always carry a Bible in their car because they thought it protected them while they were driving. And so they would literally, oh, sorry, the Bible's not in the car, and they would run in the house and quickly grab their Bible and stick it in the car so that when they were driving, they were protected. I also learned that, hey, the Bible makes for some pretty good movie plots. Especially when you get to the apocalyptic four horsemen. Okay, how many end age movies have you seen where, okay, maybe not. Maybe you guys are not as, maybe I'm the only unspiritual guy who watches those kind of movies. Anyone like to watch murder mysteries? You know, I have come over the years to realize, to figure out really quickly who the culprit is. Because if you start hearing them quote a verse or something like that, you just might, okay, they're guilty. It's just the way the movie plot seems to work. And so over the years, I've just kind of realized I'm not the only one who sort of has these weird ideas and, or, or thought process around the Bible. You know, as we go through, though, the thoughts that we have about the Bible, they kind of lead us to a couple of different places. Whatever we believe, whatever we've been taught about the Bible, it sort of leaves us that either some of us, as we look at our Bible, we kind of get that little twinge of guilt because I haven't been reading it every day like my dad told me I'm supposed to read it every day. And so there's this kind of little twinge of my Bible and I haven't opened it in three weeks. And, and so I get feeling guilty. Or we get to the point where we sort of just look at it and we kind of ignore it because, well, we sort of have heard all the stories in it and we already know it all. And so we kind of, we either ignore it or we feel this twinge. But for all of what we know about the Bible and for all we feel about the Bible and all we think about the Bible, the reality is that most of us don't know much about it. And so as we begin to talk about faith matters today, I want to talk about that as a follower of Jesus Christ, what we stand on or what we hold to. You see, sometimes we have this idea when we talk about the Bible, we begin to think about it almost as if it's a magical book that kind of floated out of the sky and just hit it with a thump and it just happened to be there. 
And, and sometimes we kind of look at it and we treat it and we kind of, it's almost, it's almost got like a glow around it. We, we kind of careful with, because, you know, it's the Bible. And so today I want to stop and say, you know what? The Bible that we stand on, that which becomes our place of faith, that which is our sole practice as followers of Jesus Christ, it is so much more interesting than simply a magic book falling out of the sky. And so for a moment, I want to talk about something we have that we stand on. So we're going to kind of, I'm going to give you a really brief, condensed, I mean, so quick that I hope all I'm doing is, is stopping to help you understand where we got our scriptures from. Obviously, it started around a guy we talked about a couple of weeks ago by the name of Jesus Christ who died and rose again. You see, when Jesus was here walking and talking with his disciples, his disciples were so convinced that Jesus was here to set up his kingdom, which he was. The only problem was is that as Jesus was crucified, his 12 disciples, 11 subtracting Judas, who went off and did himself harm, his 11 disciples ran away and literally hid themselves because they were terrified of what they were about to go through. Three days later, as Jesus rose again from the dead, something changed these 11 guys, literally turned them upside down that they were willing to get out within days of seeing this Jesus risen from the dead, were out preaching on the street saying the one that was crucified, the one that we all saw put up on the cross is alive and we have seen him. And there's been others who've seen him. And if you don't believe us, go out and check it out. And they began to proclaim this one who was dead is now alive. Well, what it did is because this thing was in the dark and everyone had been hearing about the stories of this Jesus guy and the stories about him raising again from the dead was creeping out. And literally thousands of Jewish people began to put their faith and trust in this guy who had died and then come back to life. Now, this really upset the Jewish religious leaders at that time. And so what they began to do is they began to persecute or to terrorize these people who were saying, we're going to put our faith and trust in this Jesus. And as they began to terrorize him, these Jewish people began to basically spread throughout the Roman Empire of the day and began to continue to meet together in all these little towns where they were meeting and they would get together and they would continue to tell the stories of this Jesus, this guy who died and rose again. And then they would sometimes sing a song and they would have what we would call communion. And they would promise to live good lives. Well, to kind of complicate things, one of the religious leaders, a guy by the name of Saul or Paul, who was persecuting and was trying to wipe out this little group of Jewish believers because he thought it was, it was weakening and it was, it was just not good for the Jewish faith. And so he was out trying to literally clear them out, put to death some, confiscate goods of others. He was literally on a mission to clear out the Christians when all of a sudden he had an experience that caused him to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul was a type A personality who could not keep his mouth shut. And so the only thing he did is he started from the very point getting out there and said, hey, I've met this guy, Jesus. I knew about him before, but I actually had an experience where I met up with him 
and I've given my life to him, and guys, you need to hear about it. And to complicate matters, he started going through non-Jewish communities sharing this one who died and rose again with non-Jews. This really complicated things because the Jews up until this point had this idea that Jesus was a Jew for the Jews. And as the Jews were here and the non-Jews were here and, and there's starting to be this conflict that eventually Paul and the other disciples got together and they said, did this message of Jesus Christ, was it intended for everyone or was this just for the Jews? And it became very clear that this message was intended for everyone. And so they had to come up with some rules so that everyone could get along. And so here's what they came up with. Let's go ahead and read it real quickly. Here's what they came up with. And so he says in Acts chapter 15, he says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled, and from blood. So in order to help keep the peace in the church so that everybody could get together, they said, Look, for all of you who are putting your faith and trust in this Jesus, this one who died and rose again, we just ask, here, look, there's four things. Would you observe these four things so that everyone can get along? Now, meanwhile, as this is all going on, the little church in Jerusalem that had started it all started going through some major, well, I didn't, start, it continued to go through this major persecution. It continued. And so for 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, James, who is Jesus's half-brother, now just to kind of put a little thought in here, what would it take for you to call your brother my Lord and Savior? You ever thought about that? Well, in the scriptures, we have two brothers of Jesus who stopped and said, you know what? He was and he is my Lord and Savior. Well, James became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And I say the church, but it was really made up of churches. It was a grouping of a lot of small churches. And James became, we call him the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. Now, about 20 years later, somewhere around AD 50, we're not really exactly sure. The exact dates are not, they didn't pin them in there. We write this on AD, but it is firmly believed somewhere around about AD 50, James begins as this church is going through major persecution. He sits down and writes a letter to the churches in Jerusalem to say, hey, guys, the, you, you, you can do it. Your faith, look, be thankful when you go through various trials and troubles, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete or perfect, lacking nothing. And he continues to go through and he talks about this idea of encouraging them how to continue in hard circumstances. And then he encourages them as you go through the book of James and he encourages them not just to continue through hard times, but he reminds them that following Jesus Christ is not simply about what we believe. It's about how we behave or how we act. And so he begins to encourage them. And so that little letter that James began to write spread like fire through those churches in, in Jerusalem. And it didn't stop there. All these other groups that 
spreading out through the Roman Empire, it got copied because this letter was such an encouragement. It was such a help to the Christians in Jerusalem that they literally spread this letter throughout the churches all through the Roman Empire. At the same time, we have a couple of guys, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, began to stop and say, you know, we got about 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We need to get the story down so people don't start changing it, so it doesn't become and morph into something else. And so Matthew begins to pin the history of Jesus and where he came from and what actually happened. Then comes along Mark, and Mark is a young guy who, He was with the Apostle Paul for a while, and then he actually became a probably a secretary to the Apostle Peter. And so Mark is actually what we believe is the recounts of Peter's recollection as Peter walked and talked with Jesus Christ. And so Matthew comes along, gives his account, and Mark is saying, Peter, you've got to write this down because people are going to know and they need to know, and this is so important. And so Mark began to write his letter. Or his book. Soon as this was going on, and, and it starts getting complicated, so we begin to have a couple letters that began to spread between all of these groups. And by this time, we know there are hundreds of groups fanned out throughout the Roman Empire. Pretty quickly, as Paul had gone through and had started churches through a whole bunch of towns, he began to get little rumors coming back that there were people who were beginning to twist his words. There were people who were beginning to take the story of Jesus Christ and use it for a means of power or a means to get wealth, a means to control people. And he began to stop and say, you know what? Nuh-uh, we can't do that. And he began to write a whole group of letters. And for those of you who like the big theological terms, they're called the epistles. And so you can go home and say, I know what it is now. And so he began to write these letters. And and this process continued on until each of the different churches began to collect and correlate specific writings that had been coming around. Now, within about 50 years of Jesus' departure, between 50 and somewhere close by, we're not exactly sure the exact date, some people believe that book of Revelation or John's last book that he wrote might have been written as John was a very old man right around AD 90. We're not exactly sure. Some people put it sooner, some, but we know somewhere in that time frame, the last book of Revelation was written. And so within approximately 50 years, we have 27 different books or letters written by approximately eight authors that had been collected that had been valued, that had been deemed to be authoritative by the early church that was so important to them that they copied and recopied and recopied and recopied and recopied. Now, I want to be honest with you. Up and through this time period, there were actually tons of other letters and books written by other people who were claiming to be teachers. The early church did not hold on to them because they did not believe them to be authoritative. And that's actually kind of how we ended up with our 27 books. And we don't have something like 30-some books. And we could probably end up with hundreds if we actually begin to read all the writings of the early supposedly church teachers. 
But these 27 books were deemed to be so authoritative by those who had seen and been with and witnessed Jesus Christ and deemed to have been of such value in these people's lives that they held on to it because it was all about and pointed to the guy who had died and rose again. Look, when we begin to understand how we got our Bible, it sort of removes a little bit of that magic book feeling. But the truth is, is what we end up with is something of so much more value than a magic book. We end up with a book that has been valued and cherished because of what it contains. It contains the story of Jesus Christ and his teachings, how he walked, how he talked, what he said, what he did, how he behaved. It begins to stop and it, and it begins to give us the writings of the apostles and those who walked and talked with Jesus as they began to say, look, this is what he meant by it. Here's, here's the clear teachings. And so they became valued and cherished because they had real purpose and meaning for their lives. Look, it was something that they saw as what they could anchor their lives to and they could hold on to it and say, this is what we're gonna stand on because there was this guy who died, he rose again, and here is what our life is anchored on and here's some letters and some books that explain it that we can hold on to from those who saw and those who heard. Look, today we too need to anchor our faith to something. If we're gonna do more than simply have a faith that is more than a feeling, we need to anchor our faith to something that is solid, that is based on the one who died and rose again. His teachings. We're told, the Apostle Paul tells us that those of us who don't anchor our faith to something, we become like a boat tossed to and fro. He tells us in Ephesians chapter four, verses 14 and 15, he says this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, every the, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things in him who is the head, Christ. Securing your faith to something more than feelings, though, is going to require something from you. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he began to tell him, here's, if you want your faith based on something more than feelings, here's what you need to do. Now, I'm going to put the verse we're going to put up here. I'm, I'm sorry, but I did crowd this a little bit because I want to kind of look through it, and I want to go through it, so you're going to be a little crowded up here, but just bear with me. Squint if you need to, as you see the little words, squint and whatever, get your binoculars out, and we're going to go through, but here's what Paul tells Timothy. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So Paul begins Timothy with this little idea. If you're gonna ground your faith on the words of Christ, you need to know the words of Christ. 
Paul starts off by reminding Timothy that we all have a natural tendency to want to fight over what we think we know. And so he starts off real quickly and he says this, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. In other words, he begins to say this, when we go out and simply fight over things that we think we know, we do not build up other people. We do not encourage other people. We do not strengthen our faith. We do not steady our hearts. We do not calm our minds. All we do is to the ruin of the hearers. In other words, he began to warn Timothy that when we go out and we want to fight over what we think we know, what we end up doing is, is actually causing harm to more people. And so he tells Timothy, be careful. Don't just go out carelessly arguing back and forth over everything. Instead, here's what I want you to do. And so he goes on and he begins to say this, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God. And I actually, I remember this in the old King James. As I said, my dad gave, the first Bible my dad gave me was the big old King James Version. And I love what it says. It says, study to show yourself approved unto God. And so this word, this idea of to be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, it's having to do with this idea of someone who is looking into, who's reading, who's trying to understand what the words of Christ actually are. And so he stops and he tells us, Timothy, if you want to ground your faith to something, you need to ground it in the words of Jesus Christ. You see, up until this time, or by this time, as Timothy is, or as Paul is writing this to Timothy, Paul is getting to be pretty close. He's imprisoned. He's pretty close to his death, so he's imprisoned in a Roman jail. He's probably about to be executed, that we believe. And so as he's telling Timothy, hey, rightly divide the words of Jesus Christ, now Timothy has letters and parchments and books and those early writings of James, of Peter, of Luke. He probably has the correlation. We're not sure exactly, but he has almost all the other writings of Paul saying, hey, let's explain this a little bit more. You don't have to be blind. You don't have to just argue about stuff. You can know. It's explained for you. And so he begins to tell Timothy, study these writings, study the books that you have. There's guys who have been walked and talked with Jesus. Check it out for yourself. Know the words of Jesus Christ. And then he continues on and he says this in verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more godliness. I think what Paul is telling Timothy is this, Timothy, avoid those who think they have some kind of secret knowledge of the Bible. These writings, someone who thinks they have some secret understanding of God, avoid them. Someone who thinks they want to argue about angels or, or some other special doctrine that Jesus didn't really deal with, avoid them, Timothy. Don't get caught up in arguments with them. 
Timothy, for those who want to stop and see special codes and numbers, and do just avoid it. Because all it is going to do is lead you to ruin. Instead, Timothy, I want you to do one thing. Simply know the words of Jesus. Just focus there. You don't have to worry about trying to figure it out. Just simply follow and know the words of Jesus Christ. And so within, literally within 50 years, we have our 27 books of what we call our New Testament, written by eight authors who were deemed from the very start to be authoritative and loved and respected. The second thing, though, is that we're told is that in order to ground our faith to the Word of God, we got to do simply more than just know it. James, Jesus' half-brother, he stops and he says this. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only. We're told that to ground our faith, it is not good enough for, for us to simply know what Jesus said. That's a good start. And by the way, I want to encourage you, that's a fantastic start. But James pushes us that little bit farther and says, hey, it's not good enough to simply know. You have to act on what you know. In fact, James continues on with that thought a little bit more, and he says, look, for everyone who simply wants to store up knowledge, and to store up knowledge, and to store up knowledge, and by the way, when all we do is store up knowledge, you know what that usually causes us to become? Argumentative. Seriously, the more we know that we don't really put in practice, what it really does is it simply causes us to become argumentative because we've got to get it out somehow. And so we've got to let others know this wonderful knowledge that we have. And so we actually become argumentative the more we know if we don't put it into practice. You see, the more we're doing, the less time we have to argue. And so we got to know, but he stops and he says this, it's not good enough to know because those who simply know, they're like this. And so he continues on in James chapter one verses into verse 23 and 24. And he says this, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We are told that knowing the truth is not enough. The goal is to act on the truth. The goal is to stop and allow it to change our lives, to cause us to act differently, to sound differently, to talk differently, to do differently. You see, James is telling us that for all of us who simply know and don't live out our faith, we're like the guy who looks in the mirror and sees his hair messed up and says, ah, it's good enough. We're like the guy who goes to the mirror and see his smudge on his face and says, ah, that's all right. I'll deal with it later. It's like the guy who goes to the mirror with his tie and sees it crooked and yet walks away never doing anything with his tie. He reminds him what you know about Jesus Christ, do. It's the simplicity of what I know, do. 
Don't get caught up, he tells Timothy, on doing things and trying to be what you don't know. But what you do know, act it out. And James is reminding us of this idea. What you know, live it. Look, we have a book that we follow, not because it is a magic book. Yeah, I hold to the fact that it is the very words of God. I hold to the fact that God has preserved it and held on to it for us. But it is not a magic book. It is so much more than that. It is of so much value because it is a book that has been valued and cherished from the very start by those who knew and witnessed the followers of Jesus Christ. The one who was crucified and rose again. They recorded his teaching because his teaching was so out of the ordinary. He taught, there is a guy who loves us so much. God who wants a relationship with us so much that he gave his son for us. There is a guy who is not wanting to be separated from us, but wants to be in contact with us. Who wants to have a relationship with us. He taught that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. They wanted us to have something that we could rely on with confidence. That they gave their lives copying and recopying and recopying and handing it down from person to person, from church to church, so that we may know and be able to stand on something Solid. What do we have? We have a simple truth that needs to be simply lived. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, our faith does matter. Our faith is not something that is based on some magic book that we somehow just floated out of the sky. But Father, it was preserved. It was held onto. It was passed down so that we may know with confidence about the one who died, who gave his life and rose again. And so Father, as we come and as we stop and say, we just put our faith and trust in what you've done for us. Help us not just to know your word, your teaching, but Father, help us to learn to just do it, to act it out. You see, our faith matters, but our faith is not simply a bunch of words and knowledge. Our faith is a call to action. Thank you that you did allow us to have your words of what you wanted us to have, and you kept for us those 27 books. Thank you for the churches who risked everything to give them to us. 